Hello and welcome to Talk for Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. This episode is another dive into what is one of the most fascinating and promising fields of our age, complexity science. It's a relatively new field that is transforming how we see and understand the world across multiple disciplines. Most importantly, it can provide us with a deeper understanding of our collective interactions with the complex biophysical system we call Earth and how we might avert the catastrophes that loom. Joining me today is Professor Caroline Wiesner, Professor of Complexity Science at the University of Potsdam in Germany. And she's also Associate Editor for the journals Entropy and Advances in Complex Systems. Her research focuses on the use of information theory in the study of formation, maintenance, and stability of complex systems. She is also one of the authors of the recently released book, What is a Complex System?, which served as the basis of my interview with her. In our conversation, we cover what is a complex system, what is complexity and what are some ways we can measure it, why information theory and complexity science are such powerful tools for understanding the world. We also spend some time discussing entropy, order, and disorder, as well as a bit on how these things might be related to ethical value, which has been a bit of a pet interest of mine in recent times. Unfortunately, we didn't get to cover all of the topics I wished to explore, as we were bedeviled by technical difficulties. So just a note, the conversation might not flow as normal. There might be a little bit of talking past each other, and the audio quality uh, leaves me wanting. At some points, our call dropped out completely. And uh, when that happens uh, in our conversation, you will hear the transition music. So do not be alarmed. Regardless, I still had a great time speaking with Professor Wiesner, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Caroline Wiesner. Well, Caroline, I'm very excited to have you here. I would just, I'd love to hear how, uh, you know, before we really kick off the discussion, I'd love to hear how you came to be interested in information theory and, and, and complex systems. Like what was your, what's been your intellectual uh, track or journey that that's led to you, that, that, that's led to you um, investigating complex systems and, you know, exploring the world through the lens of information. It started with complexity. Uh, I got interested in it, but really by accident, I, I got a book as a present for my 18th birthday. And it was the story, the history of the Santa Fe Institute. And I read it and I thought, oh, that, that sounds really cool. And then I went off and continued studying physics and did a PhD in molecular physics. And then when it came closer to the end of my PhD, where I, I wanted to stay in academia and was thinking, so what should I actually do? <laughs> I didn't feel that molecular physics might be my field. Um, and I, I remembered this book again. I mean, it's a, a bit of a silly story, but I, this is how it happened. <laughs> And I, I thought to myself... What was it? What's the name of the book? It's uh, Waldrop's book. Um, um, and the title, I read it in German, where the title is Isles in Chaos. And the English title is probably something with chaos. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's quite a well-known book by Mitchell Waldrop, I think is his full name. Um, and I wanted to know whether this institute that he was describing still existed, and it did. And I, I saw they had a summer school, I applied for the summer school, I was accepted, and that was the beginning of, of um, a journey I'm still on. So I received a, a postdoc um, stipend from a Swedish foundation who, who just you know believed in me 
changing field completely and told me, yeah, why don't you just go ahead and, and try it out? And uh, I was welcomed by um, Jim Crutchfield at the Santa Fe Institute as a postdoc. And he brought me on the track of information theory because he, he does a lot of that. Um, so that's how information theory got in in that research um, in those as became part of my research interest. And how long ago, how long ago was that? Because like the like how long have yeah. you been in the in the space for? So it's now twenty twenty one, and I started my postdoc in twenty oh four. So that makes it what sixteen years, I guess. Seventeen years. Yeah, yeah. So it's like still quite early days. Like at least in my mind, it was still quite early days. Um, you know, it. Uh, like I feel like a lot has happened. Or I mean, I hadn't even heard of complexity until you know five or six years ago. In the like the scientific way of framing it, I I just thought of complex things as as you know complicated things to you know something that's difficult to apprehend or understand. And now over the past few years, you know that word has just completely mm. changed uh, changed in meaning. Mm. It's an interesting question. Why I, I'm not sure, but you're right. It, the Santa Fe Institute was founded in 1984, I believe, and I was accepted into the summer school when it it wasn't that well known yet. And now it's so well known. They they I mean they completely changed the the whole um, the whole enterprise because, as you say, it has received so much attention. The topic per se and and the institute as a as a result. I don't know why that is, really. Yeah, and thank thank goodness for it because I feel like it's there's never been a more important time for you know widespread understanding and adoption of well yeah widespread understanding of how complex systems uh, what what they are how they function um, and how much we don't know about them and like I, I guess just this awareness is really important given the stage uh, where we're in. Uh, today, but maybe we can come to to that sort of stuff um, towards the end of this um, conversation. So, I would I'd love to uh, just talk to you about information in general, uh, because uh, I've I've covered it a few times um, in different ways with you know guests in the past, and you know I've always said it's it's this thing that we all have this intuitive awareness of, but we can't really point at it. It's not very easy to just say. Like to to explain what information is, at least in my mind, you know, we say we take in information and we, you know, we process it. Um, so, how do you think about information? What do you think it is? What do you think it is not? And uh, what misconceptions do you think people have of it? Information, the the term itself is being used in so many different contexts, and it, it the understanding of information is different in this in these different contexts. Um. So I, I like the quote, I believe it's by um, Bates, and information is is the thing that makes a difference. And that makes sense in our everyday life. We receive something or perceive something as information. If it changes, it changes something, right? It changes our knowledge, it changes our perception of something. Um, and so that's a, that's a very... Um, everyday understanding of, of what information is. And that could be words, it could be events, it could be, um, you know, pretty much anything that, that enters our, our reality. Um, but it already suggests something 
or a way to understand it in a more mathematical way, which has its own way of understanding information. Um, and there, information is, in a way, anything that's um, not random, um, you, could, you could argue. So information, if you translate it from the everyday, um, understanding is something conditional, right? Given my current state of knowledge or given my current, you know, un- my, my current reality, what comes in um, is unexpected or is, um, yeah, unexpected, unknown, unpredicted that it comes in. And so already you have something that has to do with probabilities and information has a lot to do with probabilities and the mathematical definition of it is a function of probabilities. So um, the difficulty is that in the everyday understanding we have this, um, well, we have context. Context is always there. Um, and, you know, if I, if I tell somebody, um, I don't know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm cancelling our meeting today, then that's a piece of information, but it comes with a lot of context, right? It could be we had a fight the day before, so I'm cancelling the meeting, then that's a clear message of, look, I don't want to see you anymore. Um, but if it is, it might have a very trivial reason. It's, you know, it's because you have a doctor's appointment. So there's context always around information, and that makes it so difficult to, to align mathematical ideas of information with the everyday understanding of information is mathematically at least in the in the in the original you know, Shannon information sense there is no context um, or rather everything that is relevant for the system is part of of your computation of your probabilities um, and they're not they're not conditional on what day it is or what color your t-shirt is um, and that makes it very hard, you know, that's the current topic of research, how do you bring in the context? Because clearly when, especially when we talk about complex systems, um, context seems to be so important, right? If you, if you want to quantify the information, say that, that um, a cell has when it makes a decision on moving or not moving, um, on traversing a, a cell, a, a membrane or not, then there is a context there, and and the probability framework so far doesn't really capture that. I'm, I'm not sure. I might be going a bit out, off topic here, but um, no, no, no. What I'm trying to say is there are t- two understandings of information. One is very basic. It is a it is a function of a conditional probability, or just a probability depending on, on uh, the problem. And the other one is. You know, the difference that makes a difference. I like that, the difference that make, di- makes a difference. I think, I don't know if I've, I've heard that, but um, I, it's, a, it's kind of one of those tongue-in-cheek ways of responding. You're like, what is information? Oh, well, it's the difference that makes a difference. You know, you're telling someone something without really telling them anything, but, you know, <laughs> it makes sense. I think yeah, you're telling yeah, them yeah. exactly what, what um, the problem is. No? So, with this, um, mm, so does all information... Like in my mind, all information requires a material substrate for it to exist. You can't have information devoid of matter, right? I think you've done a bit of work on quantum information theory, so perhaps that's completely wrong. But like my layman's understanding is that information needs to be 
based in some form of material construction, some organization of matter. So certainly the transmission of information and storage of information both are ultimately relying on some physical space, right? So you can't have transmission of information. I mean, our speaking here um, is is reliant on, you know, transmitting of, of pressure waves through air, um, and then comes the whole digital communication and so on. But that's all based on, on physics, and equally, storage of information is ultimately a physical problem. Um, I, I absolutely agree. And whether it's then quantum substrates or, or classical physics um, based substrates um, makes well it, it it makes a difference yeah so, so you mentioned um, Shannon like what's what's Shannon entropy or Shannon information what does like uh, what are you saying when, when you're referring to, when you're speaking about information in, in this way yeah it is so Shannon Claude Shannon was an engineer um, and he published a, a famous piece of work in the 40s um, that's still now at, at the the core of of the research field which is called information theory and um, he introduced a function which is a function of a probability distribution and he wanted to quantify um, the well, the information content of an event, let's say. Um, so he started out by saying, okay, I have a range of possible events here. And these events, because he comes from an engineering background, are um, signals that he might receive, might or might not receive. And he wanted to assign a probability, sorry, a, an information content to any possible signal that he might receive. Now that, of course, means he has already defined the set of possible signals he could receive. Right? So already we run into problems when we want to translate that into a complex system where we might not know what could, even what could happen, let alone what will happen. But in this, in, in this framework, we do know what could happen. And then we assign probabilities to things that could happen. And then information content of an event that actually does happen is effectively the logarithm of its inverse probability. So that means the smaller the probability of some, a signal coming in, the bigger the information content. Okay, so if I tell you that Queen Elizabeth um, has, well, let, let's take the recent example of, of Prince Philip. Uh, Prince Philip has died. It's, well, we didn't know when it would happen. We presumed it would happen you know in the near future given that he's 99 he was 99 years old so the the probability of it happening was quite high the news content was therefore much lower than than if we talk about a 30 year old person let's say died so it's a, a very um um it, it's a very clear idea of what information means the more unexpected the higher the information content and so that's translated into this function where every event is being assigned this logarithm of its inverse probability. We take the average, and then we have the, the average information of this set of possible things that could happen. So an information um, is like a negative... Um, well, information is like surprise, 
the average surprise. And if you know, if you have a set of events where you know just one of them is is very likely going to happen, and then that's actually happening, the surprise is very low, and the information content of that event and equally of the entire set of possible events is very low. That is the Shannon entropy. Um, and that's now at the heart of all the digital communication that, that we're using um, because all of coding theory of, of, of communication technology is, is based on that function, Shannon entropy. Um, and there is a legend that he didn't quite know what to call this function and he asked, according to this legend, he asked uh, John von Neumann what he should call it. And von Neumann said, oh, call it entropy. Nobody knows what it is. That's a great name. So he called it entropy. I don't know if it's true, but it's a nice story. Um, and <laughs> I mean, the connection. There is a more of a connection between, yeah, there is more of a connection between entropy, like thermodynamic entropy and information entropy, rather than them being things that are kind of hard to understand as well, right? Like, are, are they, I think I could be completely off here, but is Shannon entropy just um, negative it's, thermodynamic entropy? So, first of all, you're absolutely right. There is, there is more than a, you know, an anecdotal connection between the two. In fact, the, the mathematical form of the Shannon entropy is identical, um, except for, for a multiplicative constant to the um, Gibbs entropy. So the, the thermodynamic or statistical mechanical entropy. And it's it's still it's still discussed why that actually is. Um, you know, what's uh, why should physics be if a physical law, which statistical mechanics leads us to thermodynamics, leads us to um the the basic laws of thermodynamics, why should that be the same as an entropy that has to do with communication and probability distributions? Um, and the answer, I think Penrose gives <clears throat> in his, in his book, um, The Road to Reality gives a very nice answer. No, it's, it's a different book, but it's Penrose. Um, a, a very nice answer to that. You know, it gets us all the way into phase space and, and, um, um, points in phase space of a physical system. So as we were saying, um, there is that connection between um, thermodynamic entropy and Shannon entropy. Yes. So that connection is, like I was saying, is deeper than just an anecdote. And it has to do with the probabilistic nature of, of physics, really. Um, and it's, I mean, it's quite, it's quite funky that we can describe physics we can when I mean, we can derive um basic statistic mechanical functions from this shannon entropy just by assuming or by starting out with our own ignorance and you might wonder why would our own ignorance have anything to do with the physical law but in this case it it works and so by by assuming, for example, all we know about a system is its average energy, um, from there we can derive the basic, uh, you know, Boltzmann function of um, of statistical mechanics as the most likely distribution of events, to use the language I've used before, um, in that physical system. 
So the Shannon entropy in, in that sense is is really powerful because it captures, um, you know, we use the word surprise, information, but it captures the the possible events in a physical system. And it tells us which ones are more likely than others. Um, and it, we can do the we can do the physical experiment and it works. So um, what's surprising about it is that there is this it measures the ignorance about a system, but then if you turn it around, it's not our own ignorance really that is relevant here. I mean that's totally irrelevant for the physics of something. But what's relevant is um, the number of possibilities that there are for for states to, for the physical system to take. And if we are able to enumerate these states and we're able to give them probabilities, we actually can find out in which state the system will be with high probability. So that's, you know, that's how it works, why our own ignorance, um, which is really, the, it's really a representation of the possibilities that the system has for its own behavior. Um, and the Shannon entropy captures that because we maximize the surprise, and that means we maximize this function. But why that is relevant for physics is because it tells us what's the most likely thing to happen, and then we can do the experiment and, and it works. Um, you know, we find the same probabilities again in the experiment. Mm. So, to make sure that I'm, I'm sort of understanding here, um, a state is like the set, like a state is like the positions and velocities of every single particle in a system. Like that's one state, and all of um, there, there could be a hell of a, a huge number of um, states that a system can take, and they all have relative degrees of probability that, like, that there's a there's varying there's a varying likelihood a varying likelihood that these could be encountered, right? And the um, the more the lower the chance of encountering it, the more surprising it would be to find um, uh, that system in that certain state. So you know, like walking down the beach. There's lots of sand, but then oh, the sand castle. That's a particular arrangement of matter that's more that's far more surprising than just you know um, sand, a pile of sand. Um, and Shannon entropy measures like how is a measurement of like how surprising that state, like that that how surprising that arrangement of matter is. Correct, correct. And the the powerful thing is if if we wanted to you know, link it to uh, complex systems is that what you said is, is right. So in physics, you know, uh, very often we would talk about positions and, and momenta of particles in uh, which gives us a phase space. Um, but equally, we could talk about um, uh, very different events like the, um, I don't know, the voting behavior of, of people or, or the... Um, um, the roaming behavior of of a certain animal species, um, and equally, the Shannon entropy helps us to to build a model of these systems that is guaranteed to include everything we know about the system, but not more. Which is always you know, it's very important. You're not putting in assumptions that are not really needed to um, 
to reproduce the data that you have. And that's why I like information theory, because you can, you can use these, you can use it both in physics and, and beyond, because and, it's based on probabilities, and probabilities rule the world. Yeah, it seems to be the most uh, versatile science in a way, the, mo- the most versatile, uh, the most versatile toolkit you could have in your toolbox because you can apply it everywhere. Um, at least that's what it seems like. You know, to like regardless of the discipline, um, information theory can be applied and, and done in a way that's fruitful. Agreed. Again, um, you run into problems. In, in two ways. One is information theory is very data hungry. And physics is, is a beautiful subject because, you know, it's been, we've been doing it for centuries, if you like, and we've, we, we know how to get data and a lot of them. Um, but in other, in other areas, that's not the case. So say, you know, you're measuring gene expression of, of a stem cell, you don't get that many data. Um, so you have to, you have to learn how to handle uh, sparse data and that's when information theory is well it it quickly can run into problems because you you can't specify well enough say the value of an entropy Um, and of course the other limitation that it has is that it is it is explicitly excluding context and meaning that's you know that's a challenge yeah um this this idea of context and meaning um i i was going i, I want to ask you about order and like order in the like it's got many different um uh definitions and i was thinking about coming to this later but i think this is a good time to come into it um you know we hear we say a system is ordered or you know our society is in order or you know there's disorder. We, we, we have these intuitive notions of order um, and they kind of all have similarities. Like there is some overarching theme that ties them together. You know, like you could order something in terms of uh, size or, you know, some variable, um, s- some quantity or whatever. Um, you can like, if things are in a state of order, perhaps, you know, if something, if like your washing machine is out of order, um, it will not operate in a way that is uh, predicted of it. Um, so there's like this thing that there's this thread that um, the word order weaves between lots of different, um, I guess, circumstances and that it's, it's generally the idea that things will, um, things will happen in a way that's predictable. Right. And it kind of fits into this idea of, um, of uh, minimizing or, or in this idea of surprise or, you know, information. But I feel that like, I've done a little bit of reading and even in the book, what is a complex system? There wasn't as much, to do with order as I was kind of hoping for just because, and I I see it as it could be a part of of this problem with the importance of meaning and context, because to say that a, um, a society is ordered, um, like how do you, how do we think of order? How, you know, like I, the way, the way I'm, I'm, I, I generally think of it is it's some sort of, and this is like one half of a definition. It's like a spatio temporal territory where action will have its, will likely have its intended consequences and there won't be any like surprising perceptual um, things going on. Right. Like that's, that's kind of how I, I, I feel about it, but it's, I feel that the reason why I want to, I want I, I want to talk about order is it's this word that's so central to a lot of what we discuss. you know, what is entropy a measure of disorder, at least in, you know, 
thermodynamics and we we, we say um, complex systems are ordered like we are ordered beings in some sense so there's this word that's really being used um, a lot and I'm just really trying to get a um, a better grip on what it is from a more of a you know a, perhaps a scientific sense like what or an information theoretic sense. Like if we were to think about order in terms of information theory, what sort of answers would we would we get? The the term something being out of order is interesting, isn't it? In the English language, indeed. Um, now the information theoretic answer for order is a lack of entropy. So zero entropy states are perfectly ordered. But what does that exactly mean? It's it means, again, what you have done is you have defined what events can happen and what probabilities do they have. Well, no, what events can happen. And then you look for, for their probabilities. And if, if it turns out only one of them is, is even um, possible to occur, all others have probability zero, you have, per definition, a zero entropy and you have a perfectly ordered state. So... What you've done then is you have decided what are the possible states of my system and what is their likelihood of, of happening. So um, I can try to translate that to the washing machine. Right? So you have every day you have a possible state of your washing machine and um, the probability of it breaking down is, you know, when you have it new, you would hope that that's a zero probability. So you keep on going day after day after day after day, confirming. It's almost, you know, well, let's not get into Bayesian uh, probability here, but you, every day you confirm, indeed, the probability of it breaking down is super low. I haven't seen that happening a single time. And then one day it does break down. So an event that you had in your, in your own uh, book of probabilities, you had it listed as probability zero or tiny. It's happening. And... It well, first of all, it means the entropy has suddenly gone up um, because something is well, that's not accurate. Um, what it means is an unlikely event has happened, so it, the event itself happening has a high information content, and um, that's that's that the average it, uh, the average information might still be low, so the entropy doesn't necessarily increase, um, and. How does that relate to order? So, in your spatial-temporal um, view that you that you mentioned, yeah, I'm just thinking. I'm thinking like you know, this law and order. You know, we have social order. Like we live in this world where things happen as we expect them to. And I'm, I'm trying to think about, um, like, I'm, I'm thinking about order in these terms. Um, yeah, yeah. In we can bring in the, the term stochasticity or randomness right so something is perfectly ordered we would say doesn't have any any stochasticity so it doesn't have everything is deterministic everything is determined so you know if you um if you go out onto the street you will not be mugged that's deterministic okay and you can rely on it that's a hundred percent it's going to be the case that's order we perceive that as order and we would hope that to be true for for you know the place we live in that kind of order is desirable but there are places in in the world for sure where this probability is not 100% but it might be something like 50 right? half half of the time you get mugged um, and half of the time you don't 
um, that's disorder. It's it's one way to think about disorder. Right? Um, maybe that's maybe that's closer to what you have in mind in terms of social order. But certainly, this the the unpredictability is something that we perceive as disorder, right? Whether it is in a spatial configuration. Um, or whether it is more in time, which which we're mostly thinking about in everyday life, what's going to happen. And then if things are unpredictable, we perceive them as disordered. And that is, you, you could, in principle, quantify that with, inf- with information um, and, and entropy. So these would be high entropy societies. The, the disordered s- societies would be high entropy the disordered societies. Yeah. 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 Um, perhaps this is something we'll come to later, you know, like how do we even attempt to quantify these things? Like, you know, I know that there's a many, many, many different ways and there's so many different ways. It's kind of daunting even trying to like look into uh, each of them. Um, all right. So thank you for um, for explaining that to me indulging me there um let's move on to i guess uh complex systems um i guess perhaps briefly we could, if you could just give me like a, a two minute you know summary for those who perhaps aren't as um well versed in what a complex system is or what complexity science is what is a complex system and what does complexity science what, what does it try to do i'll start with the first question what is a complex system uh, one minute 30 seconds um we think of a complex system as something that consists of of many parts, and these parts have interactions, many interactions, and out of these interactions arises, emerges something, which individual parts cannot exhibit. So, a simple, a standard example is an an, an ant colony, where a single ant is, you know, it doesn't have any any intelligence, it would just go in a circle and die probably pretty quickly. But you put thousands of them together and you get a, a society with rules, with roles, with the, the ability to build bridges, um, to find to find food networks and so on. Um, so we have out of very simple components, something emerges which is not simple because it has, you know, structure, it has order, it has um it, it, it has maybe modularity, function. So all these things that you perceive as complex are coming out of interactions between many and usually simple parts. That's the brief on what a complex system is. And they range all the way from physics to, um, to social systems and things that are created by social systems like the internet. And then what does complexity... Sa- sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, most of the um, examples of complex systems I hear discussed are things related to life, right? So it could be, you know, a living organism or the the societies or the, the groups in which they exist, um, the ecosystems that they're a part of. But what are some examples of non-living complex systems? The Yeah, nice question. Um, the... Uh, the boundary between life and non-life is is a gray zone, of course. But we certainly, if we, if we go to physics, an example of a complex system is the you know the planetary and etc. Um, structure of the universe, where the you know the individual parts you could say are are, are pieces of of matter, 
and they have arranged into fantastic structures of obviously the solar system that we're in, all the other solar, solar systems and other um, structures like galaxies and so on, um, that are now having their own rules, which are then studied by, by astronomers um, and cosmologists. So that's an example of a complex system which is not alive. Of course, it contains life because it's life on Earth and so on, but um, the structures themselves are not living. So that would be an example. And then you could you could go to chemistry, of course, where you have self-assembling structures and, and f- fabulous experiments where, where people show how molecules are self-assembling to very intricate structures um, without you know somebody taking a pincette and putting them into place. So that's chemistry, of course, biochemistry as well. Does I think I remember reading in the book that. Um, like there are maybe they're necessary but not sufficient. No, sufficient but not necessary. I, I can't remember. But I, I'm thinking about adaptability, um, adaptation, like the ability to change behavior um, in response to something. As is that necessary for a complex system? And if so, how do these? How could how would we say that you know a, a galaxy adapts? You know, or you know, how or or a um, a molecule, or how can these inert, um, non-living systems be said to adapt? I, I just could be off here. So, if so, please just let me know. You're not off. Adaptability is a is a very central concept in in the study of complex systems. It is it is a concept though that um, is related to something that has a function, and life is is one example of systems that have a function. That's how we, that's how we think about them and, and study them. Um, so adaptability is certainly not a necessary condition. Um, one can probably argue it's a sufficient condition for something to be, to show adaptive behavior. It requires it to be a complex system. I, I think that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Um, but it's not a, f- uh, a feature of of systems that are not alive or non-functional. Um, we wouldn't, because we wouldn't talk about adaptability. We would, um, you know, we would talk about self-organization probably. Um, but adaptability presumes a functionality. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, so we've just briefly touched on th- complex systems and things that are, you know, w- what are they, and examples of them. Um, so you'd think it would be kind of self-explanatory what complexity science would do then, you know, it's a study of complex systems. But at the same time, um, when I first came across it, it kind of, the way I perceived it was a new way of doing science. You know, it, it, it was it's more than just like throwing, you know, biology or chemistry or physics or all these other sciences in there it to me it seems like a different way of if this is like the conventional way um you know reductive um developing hypotheses and testing them and um you know basically observing things observing the the phenomena in action i feel like complexity science when i first came across it it really seemed like it was distinct from or a big addition to um science the way that we've done science uh, over the past few years, it, it's not not in a way that it replaces it, or that it's like I wouldn't say it's actually distinct from, but it's just kind of like a 
oh, there's new there's new stuff that we can there's new tools that we can add into our toolbox, guys. Let's let's get to it. Maybe I can ask back. What is it that made you think this is new? This seems different. Um, I. Th- that's a good question. Um, I just never really thought about things in these terms. Um, and I think maybe the, the um, you know, agent-based modeling, like how can you just look at something? Uh, how can you just plug things into a computer and hit play? And then how can that tell you about something that's, you know, uh, uh, that maps onto the physical reality that, you know, that it's analogical in a way. Something's going on in silica, you know, that's completely separate from what's going on in the real world. And the, it's impossible to perfectly model a lot of these systems because, you know, if you were to perfectly model it, you would have the system, right? You can't do it perfectly. So how do you go from having that as like a legitimate, um, how can that be a legitimate representation of what's actually going on? Um, you know, how, how can that be considered scientific in the same way if you're running these experiments? You know, perhaps, you know, economics like, might be a good example. Like, how can we say that if we're observing it in this, in this computer model, it's connected to what's going on in the real world? Um, I think just, you know, reading about that, I, I think the first book that really brought it to my attention was um, uh, Eric Beinhocker's Origins of Wealth. I think that was like the, I'd, I'd seen a few um, talks or a few lectures, I've had a few conversations, but it was that book that really just kind of, you know, it was like a, a going from Windows 95 to Windows 10, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of my operating system, the way I saw the world. <laughs> it, it's a great book, um, Beinocker's um, Origin of Wealth. Now, I, I think it's worth remembering that, well, certainly it's worth emphasizing that complexity science is, is not in, a new science in the sense we're doing, you know, we were not following the, the very important basic rules of science, which is um, we need to, you know, we need to be predictive. Um, what we produce needs to be explanatory to the world that we're observing. And it has to be confirmed. It has, we have to be able to confirm it with experiments. Okay. Um, so it, it sounds all exciting. And I have, a, I have an idea of why it, it sounds or sounded exciting and new. But the reason is not that it is a that we're doing science in any different way. Um, but we're following the same very important basic um, you know ethics, if you like, of, of doing science. And one one reason that it's it seemed new and it, it was new in a sense is the the increasing availability of computational power and the resulting availability of data. So I think it's no coincidence that complexity science really took off at the same time when computational power really took off. And that's, you know, that's about in the 90s. Um, um, and it has been increasing ever since. There's one thing that I'd add, and I think this is really why I got really excited about it. Now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, I, I'm not very good at being, it, like, I can't do one thing. I'm physically incapable of just being interested in in one thing. So when I found out that there was this science, this discipline that kind of gave you access to a whole new, a whole world of things, like it's the, it seems to be the discipline for the generalist, right? Same with information theory. You know, you can just learn that you can learn these two things and suddenly, you know, you're like a Swiss army knife. 
you just be thrown into any sort of situation. And chances are the principles that you learn will have some, you know, level of applicability. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I, I love going from, you know, learning something about stem cells and then learning something about Twitter and, uh, you know, and it just one week has gone by between the two. Um, so it's, it's a great, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's just great. And the reason that it's, it seemed exciting, I think, lies exactly in that, or let's say the novelty, the novelty lies, lies, uh, underlies this, this observation, which is that because of the computational power, we are now able to take um, mathematical, well, descriptions of one system and check them with a totally different system. And the reason is that we now have similar amounts and quality of data for, you know, for people behavior, for example, online, uh, because everything is digitized. And we have all these new technologies on, say, you know, single cell spectroscopy that, that we didn't have um, uh, a few decades ago. So the, this wealth of data that we're used to in physics is now being... Um, is now rising in, in other areas of science, plus the increased computational power. So we can now throw all these data onto a computer. And we can, for example, you mentioned agent-based models. So we can now put such a model on a computer that relatively realistically simulates, um, say, a marketplace. And, you know, the, <laughs> the attractiveness of these models is I, I can come up with some simple rules and I can check whether these rules have anything remotely to do with what I observe in, in the real world. So that's, it might not be very deep, but it wasn't possible in the 80s to do that. And, na- and now it is. Um, and so this availability of computational power allows us to translate many of the insights and also the tools that we have from physics, like face transitions, or even thinking about a face space of, you know, uh, financial agents, uh, it, it's possible now because we can simulate it on a computer uh, where we couldn't do that uh, 30 years ago. Um, and that's the exciting bit, that we can now step into, in a quantitative way, step into fields that we couldn't, we couldn't before. So there are these complex, complex systems everywhere, and... They exist at various different scales, like, you know, cells are complex, uh, ant colonies are complex, uh, our brains are complex, and we are all, you know, we are nested, our brains are in our bodies, and we are within societies, and there, you know, we've got the little economies, we've got the global economies, so there's this nested, like all these little complex systems are nested within one another. Um, If... Can you have a, a complex system at a higher level? So let's say the economy or something that's at that level, that is a lot less complex than its underlying modular, like its underlying components? The short answer is yes. Um, there is, and you know, often you see the phrase complexity from simplicity, which is what I've explained in the beginning. You have very simple parts, you put them together and whoa, um, you get something much more complicated. But the opposite is true as well, which which allows us to, for example, do computational social science. We have, you know, a person is, is a very complicated and certainly a very complex 
um, uh, system. But once we put a lot of people together, suddenly we get predictability again. Um, I mean, you, you ask a psychologist, and they would, they would have told you that decades ago, that groups are easier to predict than individuals, right? And that's exactly, that's exactly what we have with, with, um, with people, with animals. You're you predicting a shoal of, of fish or, or a, a flock of birds. And you can do that with relatively simple, um, simple assumptions and a very simple mathematical models capture quite a realistic behavior of, of these entities. And the, I guess for, for a lot of people, surprising um, insight is that we can ignore so many things. We can ignore the age of the birds. We can ignore, you know, how, what they've eaten in the morning. We can ignore tons of things. Um, and the behavior is, is still predictable. And that's probably also what's, what gave this exciting feeling in, in, in the, you know, and when complexity science became, really took off, it was that there is a predictability, although we are dealing with this complexity, but it's not complex in the sense of unpredictable, oh my God, what should we do? We don't understand a thing. It's complex and it makes it predictable. That's, that's exciting. And that's what complexity science is doing, is it's extracting those things that are relevant to, to give a prediction in the case where it's possible. And it's, it's possible, surprisingly, uh, surprisingly often with very, very different systems. It's, it's the kind of universalities that we're finding. What array of tools or methods do we have to measure complexity? And I know that there's quite a number, so perhaps like the, the broader categories of them or maybe just like the top three or four. Um, and when would you use one versus the other? And like what are the, you know, the, the benefits of, of, or detriments of them? Measures of complexity is, is my pet project. Um, there's a whole chapter on it in the book. And the reason, um, the reason I spent quite a bit of time on it is when I started out, there were a lot of measures of complexity. Um, well, certainly a handful or, or more. And, and at some point I started to realize that they can, they can give me a, you know, they can give me a number of how complex something is, but surely they can't give me an idea of all the different aspects of the, the way in which a system is complex. I mean, we've talked about self-organization, we've talked about adaptation, um, we've talked about um, um, maybe you know, clustered structures, um, um, and there are many other things. Disorder, we've talked about that. So surely I can't capture all of these things in one number. That would be nonsensical. And yet, it's, it's what's being done. Um, and it's being done not because people are silly, but because without mentioning it, they're interested in a particular aspect of a system. So let's say, um, um, let's say economic complexity is, is something that has gained attention in, in the last years. And they are measures of economic complexity, and they are interested in in particular aspects of complexity. And in this case, they're interested in in the um, uh, if you like the complicatedness of a product. So that would be 
something like the nestedness is of a product? You know, is it simple? Do you just have to dig it out of the ground, or are there many steps involved in making? Is is it the ratio? It's like the, the ratio of inputs to outputs. Is that sort of like the the measure of economic complexity? Like how much needs to go in to produce something? At the end, I know that in Australia, we are like terrible on the measure of economic complexity. We're like 110 or something because we're just like, you know, we we just, a lot of our economy is digging stuff out of the ground and taking it elsewhere for it to be processed. Yes. I I think I need to stop bad mouthing Australia (laughs) because every time I do, (laughs) I think it just, you know, the the internet suffers. (laughs) Um, Yes, but you're right. I, I'm not an expert on economic complexity, but that's roughly how it works. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've got economic complexity, but there's a whole variety of others. Um, what sort of uh, ones are more, uh, you could say, general or, you know, if we had to, you know, if we had to pick five, you know, we're going on a journey uh, and we need to pick five of our complexity measurement tools and, you know, it's a desert island, so we can't have too many. we got to be, you know, uh, quite economical with our choices. Some of these things are quite heavy. Um, how do we, how do we, uh, which ones do we pick? It's a terrible analogy, so I apologize. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. My, my dream is of being on, on BBC's Desert Island Discs show. Um, you know, that's, that's when you know you've made it. And they ask you, what would you take to, a, to an island? Um, so, right. Um, the one measure, or the one feature of complex systems that's, I think, always relevant to measure is order. Um, You know, it came up in our conversation several times now. I think that's no coincidence. Order, structure, and we've talked about self-organization. There are many measures of complexity that are, they call themselves measures of complexity. Um, But really what they measure is order in different ways, by using information theory or by using statistical tools. And the reason is that, um, I mean, order per se doesn't say anything about whether something is complex, because I, you know, I can look at a checkerboard, it's perfectly ordered, but the checkerboard is, you know, somebody painted the checkerboard pattern on it, it's not a complex system. Um, but order is the result of self-organization. So if we know a little bit about the system and we we think it is, or we know it is self-organizing, then measuring the order is a measure of how how complex it is. How much order can it actually produce? So so that's a that that would be the first tool I would put in my toolbag for the measurement of order. You know, we were just talking about the the movement of crowds. You know how um, they th- these. Uh, Complex systems at higher levels, while they might be, while their constituent elements might be incredibly complex, their behavior that they exhibit at that level won't be too um, complex. Would order be a good, would order in this sense be a good measurement there, or like at least not thermodynamic entropy? Because I guess you just kind of need to ignore what's going on underneath and then just focus on the, on that relevant scale. Is, would you still use, some measurement of, I guess my my question is, how do you model a system? Like, if you think of them as like, is each person as a particle? Um, you know, you can just get rid of all the underlying um, complexity. That's bingo. That's that, that word just being said a little bit too much. I feel, um, but you can just kind of just ignore everything that's underneath and then model this system um, as individual parts. Does that would entropy? still be a decent measure here at least like in the 
like in the thermo, I guess you wouldn't use the thermodynamic sense. You just use the information sense. I just, I don't know if you can see where my confusion or my, my question is coming from, but I'm not, I'm not really explaining it too well, but I feel like you need to just ignore the stuff that's underneath and that still might be contained within the measure in some way. Let me see uh, if I understand what you're saying. First of all, entropy wouldn't be a measure of order. I mean, you, you have to tweak it to make it into a measure of order, which you can. But it by itself is a measure of disorder. Okay, And only, I mean, order is always um, a relation between at least two things, right? Um, so is one predictable from the other? That could be in time, in space. So that's you need a relation in order to talk about order. And entropy, you don't need relations, you can just talk about an ensemble of things and uh, how they relate to each other is, is not necessarily um, part of the measure. So you would, you can use entropy to measure disorder. And then your question, I think, relates to the fact that we have two levels in a complex system always, and usually we have more than two, but we have at least two. On the bottom level, we have the many elements that are interacting, and on the top level, we have the emerging order. Okay, so what we could what we could measure is on the on the lower level, we could measure the disorder, for example, in say molecular motion. Um, and on the top level, we could measure the structure that arises from, say, the movement of of um, animals or molecules or whatever it might be. Um, so one is a prerequisite, or one is one is describing the conditions, and one is describing the outcome. I'm not sure I'm answering your question though. Yeah, yeah, no, that I think that that gets it. That gets it. All right. Apologies for the interruptions and the clarifying questions. I just have the, you know, just some little questions that have been in the back of my mind for a while, and I don't quite, you know, I haven't quite answered them at least to myself. Um, they're, they're good questions, so keep asking them. Um, it helps. I'm glad. I'm glad. So measurements of order is one way. Is one of the if we were to maybe can bundle those together and say measurements of order is one of the desert island complexity measures. Yeah, and. Um, I've just made a distinction between measure of order and measure of disorder, so I would need both. Uh, so that my second tool is the measure of of disorder. And okay, so that's a. I guess they're not one and the same. I always thought you could kind of if I always thought that you know they would kind of be the same thing because you know if if something's ordered, it is less disordered. If something's disordered, it's less ordered i feel like i thought i always thought that they'd be interchangeable um so yes and no i agree the lack of the lack of order um is is disorder um let me see if i can explain why i need both um i think the reason so you're right in the sense that if I have a measure of order and it is zero, then you know there is disorder. Why I, why I said I need both is um, the going from one level to the next. So if I if I think about the disorder of individual parts, I want to measure that. Um, and then if I think about the order of of the which arises from the interactions, then um, I want to measure 
so I can I can have both in the system, right? So I can have disorder on the level of of um, individual behavior, and at the same time I can and usually do have an, a measure of order or a certain quantity of order, amount of order on this on this collective level. Um, and now mathematically, mathematically I can. Um, I'm just thinking. Can I can I dispose of one of them um, mathematically? Well, they're they're related functions. If I have one, I can I can bake the other. So yes, I you, I think you caught me out here. Yeah, well, I'm not I'm not trying to catch anyone out. I just want to. I really want to under, make sure that I'm trying to. I, I understand these things because you know I think I've seen this on Twitter as well. That you know, um, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where if you can read and you can read and learn so much and still feel like you don't quite get it. That's, that's been my experience. Like I've yeah. perhaps just because it's kind of, um, it's multidisciplinary and I don't, I don't have a mathematical background. So I think I don't have, I don't when I see all the probabilities and the, you know, when I'm mm. reading and I see all these, you know, equations, I'm like, ah, I, I only get it in terms of the, in terms of words. Um, so perhaps that's what might be holding me back, but I've seen other people express their, inability to really quite grok or grasp um this this space this field um so you know apologies to you and perhaps the listeners who are listening now who you know get it <laughs> but i i really just need to make sure that i'm, I'm uh, understanding these things well I, I, your question is great because i i too see a lot of confusion in in that respect and this you know the statement of oh complex systems are between order and disorder right and I think that is a confusion between um, the um, the this well because we're just we're interested in two different things here. The disorder is at the level of the constituent parts, you know, whether that's people's behavior or molecules or whatever. And every complex system has a certain amount of disorder on that level. Um, you know, you look at a beehive and there will be masses of disorder, right, visible to the eye. Um, and then at the level of, say, collective behavior or at the level of molecular structure, um, you see order arising. And so the system, in that sense, is not between order and disorder. It has disorder in it, and that's required to maintain uh you know, to maintain its functionality, to maintain its its complexity. Um, and the order is an emergent phenomenon that arises from the disorder. So we're talking about the two different levels here, and that's why I distinguish the two, the two measurements. Um, although mathematically, one function can be derived from, from the other. So um, Okay, great, great. Yeah. That clears it up a bit. So we've now we've we've done our exploration of order and disorder. I think we could put that aside for you know quantifying complexity. Um, what other measurements do we have? Right. So if I'm allowed some more tools in my toolbox, um, the um, the phenomenon of I give it the general term nonlinearity, and that is. Um, if if you want to think about it strictly, it's a, it's another f- phenomenon of order, uh, or another another occurrence of order, um, 
And what it is, is um, it expresses the fact that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Okay. Um, so I want to be able to measure nonlinearity. And I can do that in, in several ways. So one example of <clears throat> of nonlinearity is um, um, well, what has gained a lot of attraction in in um, in recent years is is behaviors of people in cities. Um, you know, a city is a complex system, and yet we find it's full of people, millions of people, and you'd say that's totally unpredictable what's happening in a city. But it turns out um, that there are predictable um, elements in in a city, and an example is um, crime rate. Right? You think you take a small city, you have a certain crime rate in that city, you multiply the number of people in a city by ten, the crime rate increases by ten, but it doesn't. It increases by more than ten. Other things you know, go go the other way around. So. Um, or a fun fun example is walking speed of people. You'd say, well, somebody in, in a small town has a certain walking speed. You go into a big town, why should that change? But it does. It goes. It, it becomes faster. So I I would need to be able to measure nonlinearities. Can't you predict the size of a city from the... Sorry to interrupt. Can't you... Hasn't there some work been done showing that you can predict the size of a city by... Just measuring the walking speed of its uh, the citizens. If if the relationship is 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 not too noisy, then then that should be possible. Yeah, I did I didn't know that specific work, but I can imagine that. Okay, I could. Yeah, I trust. Yeah, I think I read it in um, Jeffrey West's uh, scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so nonlinearity. This is one form of nonlinearity, and and. Um, it, the, the tools aren't complicated. I would just uh, fit. Uh, well, often people fit power laws, although they they rarely exist in nature. But they're often helpful in describing relationships, statistical relationships between data. That'd be my third tool. Yeah. So is is that a like you? That is a measure of complexity in a way. Like you can you can find like the nonlinearity of a system, and that gives you it's like a an indication of how complex it is. So here, I think we're we're entering a, a gray zone because the 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 um, the hallmark of complexity is the existence of such nonlinearities. Now, is something more complex than something else if the nonlinearity is higher? Yeah, you could you could argue that. I I haven't seen a convincing case where you know we would really compare two systems in that way, but. Because there's such a broad spectrum of possible models we could make. Um, you know, one is we model the relationship as a power law, but there there are other options. So it's hard. It's hard to compare. Um, to take that measure in order to compare two systems, um, I, we we could ask why we want to do that, and then maybe it makes sense. Yeah, I think I remember reading in the book that. Which I think is is the problem with all of these measures. What was that? You think it's the problem that it, it's the problem with with all of these measures is what do you do with them, right? Um, why why do you want a measure of complexity? And um, it, 
I don't know. I, I really have to think about good reasons or good no good examples of what do you then do with this. Of course, we want to be able to compare systems, but because complexity is you know is is something that lives in this high dimensional space, uh, if you like, um, it's hard to compare things with each other. Um, I think it's more relevant when you want to predict things. I th- one of the reasons why I'm really interested in, well, I think complexity science can actually do a lot for our ethical reasoning. You know, like we are a species with finite resources and for better or for worse, we are now stewards of the planet. You know, we need to kind of ensure that this planet works um, and that, you know, ideally biodiversity increases and that we don't move into a hotter house earth scenario and you know there's lots of things which we need to avoid um and hopefully make better and i think complexity science can really help us identify perhaps what are the characteristics of ethic of systems that uh like have value i mean we have our intuitions but i think complexity science and you know science in general this this century might actually give us the an understanding about what the material correlates for ethical value might be. And then if that's verified to some degree, it may enable us to make to triage decisions, right? Let's just say in some hypothetical scenario that we have to decide between saving two rainforests, you know, I know it sounds silly, but uh, we, we one of them is going to die. Um, and they are different in some sense, uh, perhaps, um, one is uh, more complex or, you know, has a greater biodiversity. Um, I don't really know. I, I, I think that these tools, these ways of seeing systems, I think what they'll be able to do uh, is really empower us to make, I guess, normative judgments, like judgments about what is what we should be doing, not just from a, like, a, you know, if we take this action, this other action is likely to, co- to occur. Um, more that more than well, the characteristics of this system are such that it appears to have a great deal of complexity um, across multiple measures, and therefore it might be more ethically valuable, not only in at this moment in time, but because systems of that nature are also more likely to beget greater complexity in the future, right? And I think you know, there's like a, some instrumental there's. We, the fact that we can take advantage of that in the future, in some sense, also may give it some greater level of um, value. Um, I don't know if that made much sense, but um, if, if there's anything I need to clarify, just let me know. I think it made sense. Um, I'm not sure I, I would, I would agree with you. It it sounds like you're suggesting that, you know, assuming we can measure the complexity of, of these rainforests. Um, and compare them in in that sense, which which I think is is very difficult. But if we assume that, um, then you're suggesting that the rainforest that's more complex in that on that scale is the one that we should rescue, and the other one we should let go. And I'm not sure where what's the justification for that. I'm not sure about scale. Yeah. I'm not sure about well the justification yeah I don't know about the, the the term scale there because you know that's where things get a bit messy you know they might not be very very complex but it might have very important constituent elements you know the, the constituent elements might be 
highly sentient beings, you know, like ourselves or, you know, primates or whatever. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that it, it appears to me that the things that have, and we're sort of digressing here, but the, the things that we deem to have uh, that are more morally valuable, like we think uh, whales are more valuable than insects. So we think, you know, dolphins are more valuable than, um, I don't know, perhaps cats. And I think, and, you know, humans are obviously very, very um, valuable, at least for that. that's what our intuitions tell us. And to us, while that, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So while our intuitions are um, anthropocentric, they are biased. I think that there is some mapping on between our, what we perceive as valuable and like complexity or them being highly ordered systems or things. Um, and I think there's like a, a correlation there. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's, I guess that's yet to be determined, but I think that I feel like that's the case. And I'd love, we could do some experimental philosophy here, you know, just survey a whole bunch of people about what they think is valuable um, and see what the corresponding um, uh, complexity measures or entry measures are, whether or not we can actually do that is another question. Um, and then kind of, see what the data says but um there's obviously a lot of underlying assumptions here however i do think that this perspective can actually could actually provide us with some uh with some answers because i don't think sentience is enough like you know the a lot of the utilitarians they think that what is important is the experience of sentient beings and the more the more sentient beings that are experiencing good things the better right you know the greatest good for the greatest number but I don't think that's sufficient because sentient beings need to be there. They are embedded within systems um, and they require, um, they, they, they require some, like they require sustenance. They require energy to maintain like the social order and they need to be embedded in like, at least on earth, we need to be embedded within the biosphere for our oxygen and for our food and all of that. So you can't just think about sentient beings. You need to think about the system entirely. And I think that, this way of seeing the world, um, complexity science, order, all these wonderful things that we've been talking about can kind of help shed some light on this area. Um, I, th I sort of derailed us, but um, I just thought I'd, <laughs> I'd um, just clarify what, I've, what I was saying. So if I, if I uh, can comment on it, I don't, I don't think you derailed us. Um, I think you're on a slippery slope and to get us off that slippery slope, um, it might help to specify what the aim is, right? So if we're comparing to rainforest and we're wondering which one should we save, we must ask for what purpose, okay? And then, and then we might be able to give an answer. And if, if we're deciding between insects and, and whales, we should ask, you know, what's the purpose? What, what goal are we trying to achieve? And we might find that insects are actually much more important to keep our ecosystem going than, than whales are, right? So, so our, maybe the, the everyday intuition and, and biases towards something as impressive as a whale will not get us very far. But complexity science has something to offer here, and that is precisely that. So I'm, I'm not an um, ecologist, but there's lots of work there where... An ecosystem is considered, and all the species in it, including including plants and and uh, so flora and fauna, and it's asking for 
the functioning of that ecosystem in its current form, which elements are key. So there's this notion of key species. And then, you know, you've, you've clarified a clear goal. We want to keep the ecosystem functioning as it currently is. What is relevant? So taking out a certain species, does it, in this model and given the data that we have and the understanding, does it matter? And then we can say yes or no, or maybe. Um, and that's a much more well-defined question than asking, you know, what's more important or what's more interesting, an insect or a whale? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with that entirely. I think, like, that's what our intuition sort of maps onto. And if we were to take, like, in this absurd hypothetical world, if we just had to choose between two organisms, devoid of any context, which one would be another, then perhaps we could use that as, like, a way of doing it. But that'll never happen. I, I, I'm thinking about it more like a what in a like a probabilistic sense like what action will ensure that there's continuity of um the good you could say like the ecosystem um and will likely lead to greater flourishing right so and that you could think about that in terms of complexity like greater complexity greater biodiversity um, um a net decrease in local entropy right i think like that's kind of the trajectory that we're on and it kind of corresponds like, you know, for us to live good lives, um, you know, you and I, we can have this conversation uh, through the internet across the world and collaborate. We can get lots of food. We can do all these amazing things because we have access to energy. We have access to like a ridiculous amount of energy compared to our, uh, our ancestors. And all of that is dependent upon. But, but Sam, I, yeah. I, I think I need to interrupt because I don't understand even what you mean by by flourishing by uh, lowering the local entropy yeah um I'm, i've i've lost okay you, or you've lost yeah me. you know that's good because <laughs> i mean you know more about this than me so you can really highlight some holes in my thinking this is um so flourishing is kind of you know you can think of it as like um the ultimate state of well-being right like if if you were as good as if everything in your life was as good as it really could be that'd be like the peak that'd be like the best things could be for me, um, and there's obviously the inverse the for you, but there's also for others. For others, yes, yes. But if we could try to, if you could, if there was like some way that we could just maximize that number for all of life, for all of sentient things, like this is kind of what the utilitarians want. Like that's what they think we should be doing, right? Like that's like the the that moral frame. That's how we should be. Uh, that's what like the consequences of our actions. Uh, it, that's what we should be thinking about um, when we make ethical decisions and what is most relevant is like the the experience of um sentient beings that's like one that's one frame um so and that, that's what i kind of mean by flourishing like the just the experience of the good by as many people as possible right and i think that that is dependent upon increasing order in the world because it, our well-being is sort of dependent upon us being within um you know, social systems that are ordered so that like, we can get adequate nutrition so that, you know, we can get enough, we can get enough sleep. We can have our vaccines. We can, you know, there's this whole array of things that fit into our subjective well-being um, that are dependent upon our ability to act in the world in a way where our actions will generally have the desired consequences and things won't, you know, result in disaster. Right. So I think like, you know, our would you say that our like society today is far more ordered than it was, you know, a, a thousand years ago? Like, even if we were to like take it from like a 
a thermodynamic like or information theoretic sense of entropy would it, would you say that things are a lot more ordered now than they were before or a lot less disordered i think that it it is not that simple i i don't think i can actually make a statement about that okay i mean i i certainly can say that um well, I can talk about crime rates, and I can see that they're going down. I can talk about death rates through war. I can see that they're coming down. I mean, people just have to. Pinker likes to talk about these things. Uh, that the world has gotten a lot better in that sense. Is it more ordered? I'm I'm not sure. At the same time, you know, we're now because the the planet is is <laughs> it's populated by. By you know three times as as many people as it was sixty years ago, um, we're we're facing problems like uh, like these pandemics that like the one we have at the moment. Um, so does that mean? Well, I, I don't I don't even know how to start talking about things in more ordered. Um, it, the world is becoming more and more connected, and that means both you know people are being more and more connected, but also. The social, ecological, economic system is, or the systems are being more and more connected into a single social, ecological, economic system. And that's, I don't know if it's more ordered or not. Um, It's certainly bigger. Yeah. I mean, we could definitely say that, like, if we take into account biodiversity loss or just, you know, just the destruction of the environment, I think we could probably say that it's a lot less ordered than it probably was back way back when or you know 100 200 years ago because we've really taken over this planet and um have destroyed a lot of things i was thinking more from a like it's hard to you know everything's kind of connected so if you try to put these artificial boundaries to try to talk about the system and i was kind of referring to our you know our social system like our societies rather than the totality like rather than like the biophysical system of earth but yeah it's um like i i get the impression so i remember reading um, like one way, one like rough, rough metric. I think it might have been alluded to in the book. I can't remember, but um, energy rate density, um, like the amount of you know the amount of energy running through a system per unit time per unit mass, and that being is like a a proxy for complexity in a way, um, because complex systems obviously require energy to maintain their form across time. Um, and the more complex something is, or so the 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 more the higher the scale, the more energy is required, I guess, to maintain that system. Um, and it, energy rate density could be a good, I guess, a proxy for that. Uh, it could be a, a good, a, yeah, a good proxy. Not not a definite measure, but just like a, a a proxy for it. I think it's similar to saying that the size of the system is a proxy for its complexity, and that in some cases that works, and in other cases. It doesn't, right? Um, uh, so we, we, we're going back between complexity and, and order. And um, complexity, like I say, is, is multifaceted. So the size of the system might very well be uh, an indicator of how complex it is. And energy consumption is, is a proxy for size. Um, but then... If you go back and ask, well, how how much self organization is happening in that system? How much you know? How much functionality is in that system? Um, then it might turn out that the bigger system is less complex than the smaller one. Uh, that's difficult. 
But if I, if I come back to order, then we can be much more precise. It's much easier to talk about order. And, and we, had, we talked about that in the beginning, that this, if, if we take um, um, you know, Shannon entropy as a measure of order, or its, its absence, its, its lack as a measure of, um, sorry, disorder, and its, its, its lack as a measure of order, we need to, first of all, specify all the possibilities that we think a system has in its behavior or in, in its, um, yeah, let's stick to behavior, which narrows down, or which, which specifies much more what, you know, what question are you really asking when you say, has society got more ordered? Well, you need to specify first which behaviors you're interested in. Are you interested in, you know, criminal versus non-criminal behavior? Are you interested in economic in investment in 10 different portfolios? Are you, what, what are you interested in? And then, and then we can give a measure of order, but it's, it's, it's relative to the, the parameters that you, that you're interested in. And I think it's important because to say, I don't know, humanity flourishes, <laughs> you know, what's, what are we, what are we including in this, in this system that flourishes? Um, are we including, are we including insects or not? Uh, is our flourishing somehow related to insects or not? And if we're excluding it, then we get one value. If we're including it, we will get another. So we have to specify in relation to what. And this is, it's the same with this Shannon entropy. It, it's, it's usually not stated explicitly, but it is there as, um, as a prerequisite. You first have to define what the relevant parameters are. Uh, is it people or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, just intuitively, I think all of it, if, if possible, like not just not just people, but like the whole, the whole of life. Um, I think something that I've been, one of the mistakes I've been making in this discussion is kind of confusing, like, if we think of like, uh, this is just all the different scales, I'm kind of taking all of this into totality, whereas you have different levels and each level can have varying degrees of complexity. And I think that and and levels of just levels of, I guess, um, like the way I think about it is if this is this, if there's a system up here, that's got all these parts underneath there, that thing, that system would have like a, a measurement. Sorry for those listening. I'm pointing at my arm and there's like a scale, you know, going down to up from my, the top of the scale is, um, the higher level and the lower scale is a lower level. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, is that in terms of the size of the system? So the uh, you're on your arm, the upper part is bigger systems, and then the lower you go, you go into yeah. you zooming in in space. Yeah. So so this would kind of be the global economy, and then this would be it's got the global economy's got lots of people, and those people have organs, and those organs have cells, and those cells, you know. Um, I'm kind of I take that in totality. Like I, you could could you sum. I'm thinking about like summing all of the, all that together in, in some sense and giving it a number, giving it some term, right? And I'm confusing that with the complexity that's going on at each of the levels. And I think that's a part of, I think that's caused some confusion in my own head, but also in, in this conversation as well, because I've been kind of, con like sometimes I think I've been conflating them. Well, they are, they are connected, right? So first of all, there, there is, I mean, often one, reason for um, the need for a measure of complexity 
that's given is that we want to know has you know does the complexity in the universe increase or not um, as as the universe is expanding and we don't have an answer really um, but we could give individual answers by say the number of species that have that have um, you know come into existence in the in the last millions of years that's more specific and so um, you could ask on each individual level you could talk about complexity like you're saying is you know how complex is uh, on the level of microorganisms if you take them as as individual parts what kinds of structure do they generate and then that is you know your universe that you're studying with the tools of complexity science for example but you can of course also ask the about the number of levels in the system if you start with the economy and then you go all the way down to um, to quarks many levels that you're passing through here um, and I mean you know making probably quite a few assumptions you get a number I don't know what that number is is good for but maybe it is good for something yeah yeah I just feel like there is that something that separates all of them uh, that there is some number there I just sort the way I see it is like some it's some level of order like that's that's the way I kind of conceive of it um perhaps wrongly well it's confirmed by time isn't it evolution i mean evolution started out with fewer levels and then you know once humans came into the picture and then we've added some more levels in terms of the systems that we've invented like the economy so it's not it's not that silly to say that uh, levels have been added over time so we're nearing the i'd say the the end of our time allotted for this um, discussion i know you've got to get some get, get some lunch as well um so i guess what are two questions to wrap up and i guess one of the questions i was going to ask is what are some of the biggest misconceptions but i think we might have covered that a bit you know just given like um that what are some of the biggest conceptions people have of complex systems so other than the ones that i might have you know voiced in this um in this conversation uh do you have any others to, to add, like in, in your conversations with people? There is, there is one that comes to mind. Uh, if it counts as, as misconception, you, you tell me. But there is a conflation, certainly, very, very regularly between complex systems and chaotic systems. Um, so chaos in, in a mathematical sense, but it's, it's quite intuitive, really, that is a system which is really a set of equations uh, that are you know, coupled couple of differential equations, whatever, a set of equations that are describing the movement of something. And because of the nature of these equations, the movement is effectively unpredictable beyond a very short um, time window. That is often mentioned together with complexity. Um, you know, complex systems are chaotic. But these are completely different phenomena. And uh, there is a good reason, and it's more a historical reason, I think, why they're mentioned in the same same sentence, which is both of these fields have gained um, well, they've they've gained a lot of momentum through the advent of computational power, because um, the predict the predictability, or rather unpredictability, of chaotic systems has been you, people could study it in much more detail once they could put it on a computer and run it for long times. Um, and complexity is often considered to be, you know, unpredictability is part of complexity, but then unpredictability is part of, of many different things as well. So 
It's not enough to connect chaos and complexity. They are two different phenomena. Mm-hmm. And what lesson from, yeah, if you were to pick one lesson or one thing to keep in mind, one takeaway from complexity science that would help us best, you know, perhaps individually, but perhaps more, yeah, more collectively navigate the times that we're in. So if there's one, one lesson that we could take away from complexity science to help us navigate the world more effectively, what do you think um, it would be from your mind? It's a tough one. Uh, two things come to mind. One is, the, the, one of the big insights is that we can translate knowledge from one field to another. So we can translate knowledge from, say, uh, material science to, um, to um, epidemics, where the physics of these systems is totally different, and yet we can translate knowledge from one to the other. So that's, that's what's helping. Um, and that's related to, to the second insight, which is these universalities that we're seeing um, that make it possible to do complexity science. Um, so it makes it possible to jump from, from one field to the other. And, and that's helping us to, to tackle new problems by looking back over our shoulder and um, using knowledge from previous, maybe completely different looking systems, and yet we can use the knowledge. Yeah, it's um, very exciting. We get to just go and look at old questions with, you know, a new set of glasses and see things in, in new ways. Very exciting. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, uh, if they want to keep up to, you know, you know, with your with your work, what you're up to, um, where would you direct people online? Obviously, I'll, um, there's your book, uh, What is a Complex System, which I'll link on my website and in the show notes and all that. But if people just want to keep up to date with some of your, some of your work, where would you direct them? So there's my website, uh, carowiesner.org, which I do my best to keep up to date. I'm not on Twitter, I'm afraid. So, um, but ResearchGate is something that people can sign up to. Um, I'm, I'm medium traditional when it comes to means yeah. of, of dissemination. It's probably a good thing. Helps you... F- Helps you helps you focus a bit more. Like Twitter is this wonderful and terrible place, you know. I, know. I think it's the best of them, but yeah. it still has its, uh, its problems. Well, I might just not be brave enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Caroline, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and actually, is there any request for the audience? Like, is there anything you'd like to to say before we wrap up, or if, you know, other than buy your book, which I, <laughs> I definitely recommend? Um, uh, any requests at all? Requests for the audience. Um, or parting messages. Or, you know, parting messages, requests. I guess you kind of, you kind of covered it with your... Um, right. I, I, I think dialogue would be my request. Um, keep up the dialogue. And so, you know, for a complexity scientist, dialogue is, is part and parcel because I can't possibly say anything sensible about, let's say, um, molecular biology without talking to molecular biologists because I'm not trained in it. And I think the same translates to any, any part of life. Um, we need to keep up the dialogue with people who have knowledge that's different from our own. And then um, that's, it's true for Twitter as well. You know, keep Twittering, but Twitter to people who have other opinions than yourself. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All of the links to things discussed can be found in the show notes which you can find either on your podcasting app 
or on my website at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and anything else I've got going on, subscribe to my newsletter through my website, follow me on Twitter at Sam H. Barton, and subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can view all of the podcast episodes as well as short clips of some of the highlights from them. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to share it with whoever you think might love it and consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.